Praise the Lord. It's great to see everyone here today. Thank you for being with us online as well. Uh, we're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Revelation. Uh, today, we're going to be focusing on the Apostle John's letter to Pergamum. My title for this sermon is Pergamum, Called Out of Compromise. As a way of introduction, I want to just share with you a story from the book of Numbers. There's a reason for this, because our scripture for today will uh, talk about Balaam. So he, we will be hearing stories, and the author wants us to conjure up images and these stories from the book of Numbers. So God had delivered the Israelites from their captivity in Egypt. He destroyed Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army. He made a covenant with the Israelites on Mount Sinai, giving them the Ten Commandments. And immediately, immediately, the Israelites broke this covenant. God continues to show his mercy. He sets up his tabernacle, which is this huge tent where God would dwell with his people as they journey together. And God gives Aaron and the priests to the nation of Israel. At that moment, he leads them into the wilderness. And we get to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, if you look at it, is a, all these stories about Israel's rebellion and God's faithfulness. And these wilderness stories were told and retold throughout the history of Israel and the church by the, po by the prophets, by the poets, the psalmists, and by the apostles. So these were stories of the people of God that they are used to hearing, and we will hear one of them today, or actually a few of them. But I want to tell one today, and it is about a donkey. It's about a donkey, and I'm going to name him Dylan. Because Dylan, donkey, uh, Dylan means faithful. It means loyal. And Dylan was a faithful donkey to his owner, Balaam. And on a particular day, Dylan was looking at his owner, and he could tell that Balaam was excited. And he knew they were going on some kind of trip because Balaam took a blanket, put it over Dylan, and he started to pack up Dylan's back with what seemed like a particularly heavy load that day. So, he, so Dylan was smart enough to know. He had done this plenty of times to know they were going on a big journey together. Turns out that Balaam was hired by the Moabite king, Balak, and he was going to get all of this money, all of this gold by the king, the Moabite king, Balak. So Balaam was really, really excited, but, and uh, he's a sorcerer. Balaam is a sorcerer. He was hired by uh, King Balak because he had a reputation for being able to speak to the gods. So Balaam does the right thing. He speaks to God, and God says, yes, Balaam, you can go in this journey. But as soon as he's on the journey, as soon as he's on Dylan's back and he's on the road, the scripture says that God is upset with Balaam. And you think to yourself, why are you upset? You told him he could go. Well, it must have been something to do with the greed that was in Balaam's heart. So God determines he's going to kill Balaam, and he sends the angel of the Lord to block the road. In the Old Testament, if you hear the angel of the Lord, you should be thinking to yourself, this is Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. This is Jesus as God before he became a man. And he is standing right in the road. And what 
this particular part of the story is that Dylan, the donkey, he sees the angel of the Lord. But Balaam does not. Dylan being a good donkey, he sees the angel of the Lord. He knows he's going to kill his master and he runs off into the field. And Balaam gets off, his, off the donkey and he beats him back onto the road. Dylan, being a faithful donkey, presses on. And then all of a sudden, there's these two vineyard walls, and there's this narrow passageway, and the angel of the Lord is right smack dab in the middle of the, of the two walls. Dylan, being a loyal, faithful pet, pushes off to the one side and literally crushes Balaam's foot against the vineyard wall. And again, Balaam is furious with his donkey, and he beats him again. The angel of the Lord goes down the path, way down the path, and again, Dylan sees the angel of the Lord, and he literally lies down on Balaam. Balaam's furious and beats him again. And then the best part of the story, the humorous part of the story, God gives Balaam, I mean, God gives Dylan, the donkey, the ability to speak. And this is the conversation that went on between Dylan and Balaam. I'm putting it in the PSV, the Philly-style version, Dylan says, yo, bro, what have I ever done to you? Why do I deserve you hitting me three times? And Balaam says, now Balaam is literally talking to his donkey at this point, because you made a fool out of me, and I wish I had a sword right now and I would kill you. Dylan, seriously, bro? Am I not your ride or die? You've always ridden me, and have I ever treated you the way you're treating me now? And Balaam had to admit, no, you have not. You got to love Dylan, keeping it real. And all, at that, all of a sudden, at that moment, Balaam's eyes are open. He sees the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says to you, why are you beating your donkey? And Balaam falls down on the ground, and he repents. And God says, continue on your journey. You can go see King Balak. It's quite a story, isn't it? These wilderness stories, they're crazy. Balaam gets to the point where he's with King Balak. King Balak takes him up on the mountainside where they can see all of Israel. And he says, now curse him. Because that's why he was hired. Balaam was hired to curse the Israelites. So Balaam consults with God. And God says, you can't curse my people because my blessing is upon them. Now, this happens three times. And instead of giving a curse, Balaam gives a blessing. Balaam, Balak, King Balak is furious. Again, Balaam blesses the Israelites. Because we all know if God's blessing is on his people, no one can curse them. This happens three times. Balak is furious. And we'll leave the story at that point right now. We'll pick it up a little bit later. Please stand. We're going to read our scripture for today. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Let's read the word of God together. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have, had, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it, the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, please, by your Holy Spirit, anoint this time. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to even this church at New Life Church. Open our ears that we may hear, give me, grant to me a heart that is full of love and compassion for your people. I pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Just a few comments about the city of Pergamum. It's a city a lot like these other cities that we're talking about in Asia Minor. They had this big, like a lot of Greek cities, had this big kind of fortified upper part of the city. They had plenty of temples like all the, all the Roman cities did. The Temple of Athena. She was known as the victory bearer. Kings would pray to her for victory in battle. There was a sanctuary of Zeus. There was the Temple of Dionysus the patron god of arts and theater. Again, this was a part of the imperial cult. Emperor worship was prevalent in Pergamum. It was a cultural center of the area. Rulers were generously, they would generously be patrons of the art and philosophy, athletics, rhetoric, and science. They had a big gymnasium. They had a theater and a a world-renowned library. So think of, in our time, New York City. And that will give you a little bit of a hint of all the culture going on at Pergamum. It was known as an agricultural center. It got most of its money through produce, selling produce and livestock. And as all is the case with all of these churches, it was under heavy persecution from the rulers of Rome. And it was hard for Christians to fit into Pergamene society and, and to do business in that city. And because of this, the church in Pergamum was tempted to compromise the gospel, which is my main idea for today. It is easy to compromise the gospel. Don't do it. You've heard Nike just do it. Well, in Pergamum, don't do it. It is easy to compromise the gospel. Don't do it. It is easy to compromise on the left. It is easy to compromise on the right. It's easy to compromise when you're trying to go right down the middle. It's easy to compromise the gospel. Don't do it. And as is the case with all the other letters, there's this kind of rhythm to the letters. He commends Pergamum for the good that they do. He challenges them to repent of the bad. And then he offers a reward to those who do not compromise. The good, the bad, and the reward. Let's start with the good. Verses 12 through 13. Jesus is described as the one with the two-edged sword. The word of God, Jesus Christ always faithfully issuing forth the word of God from his mouth, like a two-edged sword that cuts deep and can divide up bone and marrow, going deep enough into our spirit that we 
are penetrated by the word of God. It separates out the good from the bad. And the, the city of Pergamum, and this is very striking, the city of Pergamum is known as the place where Satan dwells. The place where Satan has his throne. There is so much evil in this city that it is described as the place where Satan rules. His very throne, the center of his kingdom is at Pergamum. Think about that for a second. How, how bad could it have been to be the center of Satan's kingdom? And then there's this Greek word. It says, you hold fast to my name. You hold fast to the faith. It's this Greek word, kriteo. It means to hold. But it also can mean to seize a hold of something. The people of Pergamum have seized a hold of their Savior, even in the midst of this horrible persecution, and they will not let go. It reminds me of Jacob in the Old Testament. Fighting the angel of the Lord, being defeated, but grabbing a hold of him. I will not let go until you bless me. These are the people of Pergamum. And they do not deny the faith, even in the midst of their death, as in the day of Antipas. Antipas, called a faithful witness of Jesus Christ, a faithful follower of Christ, who did not, who did not give in, who did not renounce his faith, who did not compromise, even to the point where he was put to death. It's significant that the scripture calls him a faithful witness because in Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ is described as the faithful witness. This shows that Christ considers his own perseverance in the midst of persecution and his death and then his entrance into glory to be the paradigm by which all Christians enter into his rest. We are a people who must persevere at the very place where Satan dwells, even if it means our life. It is easy to compromise the gospel. Don't do it. I think this has a lot to say for us at New Life. And for a second, I just want to talk to some people who've been here, say, 15 20, 25 years or more. You have been faithful witnesses to the gospel in this community. And Jesus knows it. You have stood your ground. You have not compromised the gospel. And Jesus says, I see this. You are my faithful witnesses in Alney, in the upper north Philadelphia and throughout this city. Just let that, take that in for a moment. Well done, Jesus says. Well done. Just keep going. Hold fast to my name. Do not compromise. I see your good works. That's the good. The bad. The challenging part. Again, krateo is used, this word is used again for those who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And some hold to the heresy of the Nicolaitans. I said in, in my sermon three weeks ago that we don't really know what that heresy is all about. But we do know some things about Balaam because I just shared that story with you. This sorcerer who was hired to, to curse the Israelites 
this kind of teaching has lived on. And what John, the Apostle John, is doing, he's saying, remember these stories from the book of Numbers. Remember these wilderness stories. They've been told to you again and again by the prophets and the priests and the poets and now the apostles. Remember the teaching of Balaam because it's in your midst. And Balaam, we know from the book of Numbers and now we know from uh, Revelation, he couldn't curse the people. He was given all this money by King Balak, but he couldn't curse the people. So he comes up with another idea. He encourages the women, the Moabite women, to go and have sexual relationships with the Israelite men, to bring them to the feasts and the sacrifices of the Moabite gods. And so these men begin to participate, to begin to eat the food of idolatry and to enter into sexual relations and to enter into sexual immorality to the point where they're trapped and they start to join in on sacrifices and the worship of the Moabite gods. This is the teaching that is still prevalent in the book of Revelation to the church at Pergamum. And it is even present in our time today. Numbers 25.2 says, These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods. So the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. It is easy to compromise the word of God. Now, I don't think in our time, in modern times, we're going out and having these kind of relationships with somebody, and all of a sudden they're saying, okay, we want you to sacrifice to our God, eat a meal, and we're going to have, we're going to have sacrifices to our God. That's not what modern life is like. They, that's an ancient time. So what does that mean for us today? I want you to think in terms of intimacy with the world. Intimacy with the ideas of the world. And we have plenty of that on display in our nation right now, don't we? Think of all the ways the values of the radical left or the radical right have seeped into the church. An intimacy with evil that is very alluring, it catches us up and it tempts us to worship the gods of our nation. So it's time to it's time to identify the elephants in the room. You know those phrase the elephants in the room. An important or controversial issues that everyone knows about because they're as big as an elephant in the room, but nobody talks about it because we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to cause any controversy. We don't want to upset people. I'm very familiar with elephants in the room because I grew up in an alcoholic home. I've been very honest about that in my preaching. And when you grow up in an alcoholic home or anything like it, there's a dirty little secret you have to keep. We couldn't talk about my father's alcoholism. We might upset him. The secret might get out and people might think worse of the Bathursts because we had this problem in our home. Praise be to God, my, my dad has been sober for something like 20 years. We talk about it. We talk about it. Praise the Lord. He has redeemed my father from his alcoholism. And my dad and I still talk about it. We don't talk about it much because we have forgiven each other. We have worked through the redemption of this in our story, family story. But occasionally, 
We'll talk about it. And it wasn't terribly long ago that my father said, remember that fight we had over the dinner table that one time? I said, I do remember. He said, I never apologized to you. I'm sorry. That was only a couple years ago. We still talk about what used to be the elephant in the room. The people of God at New Life Church, we have to talk about the elephants in the room. The systemic issues that have seeped into our church life. Now, I'm going to speak plainly. I'm going to speak honestly. And what I want you to do, I've said this before, watch as I'm speaking these things. Watch for resistance in your own heart. Don't assume what I normally do when I hear a penetrating sermon. I start blaming it on the preacher instead of noticing the resistance in my heart. I'm not up here as a perfect man. I acknowledge that. But I have saturated this in prayer, and I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will use it. Pay attention to your own resistance. It's look in the mirror time. Just you and Jesus and the words of your scripture. Let me pause and pray just for a moment. Father and God in heaven, it's hard to look in the mirror. It is hard to look at our own sin. But thank you that you are a forgiving God. So the more that we look at our sin, the more you forgive. I just simply pray that you would search out our hearts. Each single one of us here today, listening through live stream, that we would know you would convict us of our sin, that we might repent of it this day. And fill me with compassion. Fill me with love that I can't fill myself with, but you can. Give me a love for the compassion and compassion for your people here in this church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have had plenty of individual conversations over the last year or so. And it might be tempting for you to think that I'm singling people out. I'm not doing that. Because I've heard these things for 15 or 20 years. So I'm not thinking about individuals. Even if I look at you today, I'm not thinking about individuals. I'm thinking about the elephants in the room. Let's begin on the right. I said we can compromise on the left. We can compromise on the right. We can compromise down the middle. Let's, let's start with the right. The right says, don't talk about politics. What they mean by that is let's not talk about race. Don't bring it into the pulpit because it's just too highly politicized at this point in time in our culture. But here's the problem. We have to talk about politics because politics is where all the false doctrine is coming in from the right and from the left and sometimes down the middle. So we have to talk about politics. The extreme version of this is, if you're going to talk about race, that's really Marxism. That's really critical race theory. And I'm not going to say those things don't have anything to do with the discussion. We'll get to the left in a second. But as soon as black Christians or people of color hear that, I'm here to tell you from my constant conversations with them, they see that as a smokescreen. They see that as a person who doesn't want to deal with the sin that lurks in their own heart. 
Pastor Larry has been trying desperately to help us understand this. It's a hard thing for him to have to do. It's a hard thing for me to have to say it here today. The most extreme version of this is white nationalism, which we see has penetrated our nation. And I'm not here to say anybody in this church is a white nationalist, but I am here to say that some of these ideas are starting to get caught up into the church. That's what I'm saying. I am talking about the redemption of politics. We are Christians. We believe in the redemption of every single sphere of life, including politics. I'm talking about the redemption of politics and the ability to speak honestly with one another. It is easy to compromise the gospel on the right. Don't do it. Now, on the left. What I am really concerned about on the left is this cancel culture. Because what happens is people on the left, they tend to understand racism to some degree. And they get frustrated with people who don't. And they get so frustrated that they say, I'm canceling you out. I'm ignoring you. Your voice no longer matters. Be quiet. Now, I want to say something, and I want to say, try to be clear about this. What Pastor Larry, when he led us on a lament for Ahmaud Arbery, that's not what he was doing. He was not canceling out your voice. He was saying, I simply want you to listen to the black voice of lament. Just listen to it, and we'll be able to talk about it later. That's what he was doing. The extreme version of this is anti-racism without a desire for reconciliation. But the Bible calls us to reconciliation. It's hard to do on the left. It's hard to hear people who don't get it and not to become so frustrated that you cancel them out, you talk anti-racism, but then reconciliation goes out the window. We, we've been talking to a friend of ours, a pastor friend, who has led a multicultural church for years and years and years, and this is the way he has said it to us. If you are a reconciler, you have to be anti-racist. But you can be an anti-racist without being a reconciler. That's helpful words, and I think it, tells, it gives us indication of what's going on. The most serious form of this is this kind of anti-Christian doctrine on the left, and they do want to cancel out the church. They do. And it has even infiltrated into organizations like Black Lives Matter. Now, let me be crystal clear about this. I am not saying that everybody in Black Lives Matter is bad. And I am certainly not saying that the phrase Black Lives Matter can't be used. We just, we just saw a video not too long ago about the image of God, the imago dei in somebody. Black lives do matter, and we should be able to say that out loud. But we should be able to have such a nuanced conversation that we also say there are anti-Christian sentiments in the organization of Black Lives Matter. We know that to be true. We should be able to say both without trying to cancel each other out. 
And this liberal left rhetoric has come into the church. It is easy to compromise the gospel on the left. Don't do it. Don't do it. I am here to confess my own sin. And I'm here to lead by example to say, I still struggle as a white man with racism. That's, that's saying I'm still a sinner. I see this racism that lurks in my, in my soul. And if I don't admit that out loud to you, then I'm, bear, then I'm bringing in some kind of weird false doctrine. Now, my, my black and my Latino and my Asian friends know how hard I've worked all of my life to be sensitive to people whose skin is not white like mine. I have worked hard. I have led hard. I have fought for this cause all of my life. But that does not mean that racism doesn't lurk in my heart. And that doesn't mean I shouldn't say that out loud. I thought we were doing a pretty good job at New Life, to be honest with you. And I thought I was doing a pretty good job as your leader. And then Pastor Larry comes, and especially Sister Harriet, because I have become very close to Sister Harriet. And she says things with passion. And sometimes she says things with anger. This is public information for all of us. <laughs> I'm not saying anything behind her back. She says it out loud to all of us. And she should be angry. It is hard to live as a person of color in our culture. And it is hard to be in this church as a person of culture, a uh, person of color at times. That is just simply being honest. But she has not canceled me out. And I say to her, I know there's going to come a time, Sister Harriet, when I just say something stupid. And I know you're not going to let me get away with it. But I know you love me. And I know you won't cancel me out. I thank you for sticking with me, even at these moments. Because what, and this is what I want to say about my own leadership. I didn't know it. But apparently, we have created, I've helped to create a system in this church that says to people of color, you have to, comp, you have to fit into white culture. You have to assimilate into our culture. I am guilty of that. It has to be said out loud. I didn't know I was guilty. It was out of ignorance. But then the spirit comes and he convicted me. And I, I just have to say that out loud. It is okay for white people to say that out loud in this church. You are safe. You will not be canceled out. It is easy to compromise the gospel. Tim, don't do it. There's this larger context. I've already talked about it in the book of Numbers. So when you think of the teachings of Balaam, you, you shouldn't just think of that one incident where he tried to curse the people of God. You should be thinking about the whole of the book of Numbers and all these wilderness journeys. And there's this one particular moment, and the book of Numbers it's just, it's grumbling, it's grumbling. It's the people complaining, we're in the desert, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry. They start grumbling against Moses. That's the book. That's the whole book. That's what it's about. And there's this part in number 16 that I, is, I just think is really key for us as a church. One of the priests, his name is Korah, he, he incites a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And he takes along 250 people 
the most prominent leaders, and they rebel against Moses. Now listen to what they say. They united against Moses and Aaron, this is number 16.3, and said, you have gone too far. The whole community of Israel has been set apart by the Lord, and he is with all of us. What right do you have to act as though you are greater than the rest of the Lord's people? You see what's going on? He wasn't saying anything wrong. He was saying, we're all the people of God. True. But he's basically saying, they're basically saying to Moses, your leadership is, we, we can lead this group as much as you can. We hear from the God the same way you do. Remember our friend, this pastor friend, multicultural church? This is what he said to us, too. He said, Tim, Larry, you have to lead out of humility. If, that's, if you don't start there, everything else is cooked. But the people of God in the church lack for a basic understanding of biblical leadership. They do not understand that Pastor Larry is our senior pastor. And God speaks to him differently than he speaks to any one of us. It doesn't mean that we don't hear from God. And Pastor Larry's not Moses. Moses is this kind of foreshadow of Jesus. But we can learn from analogy, what does biblical leadership look like? God always raises up a single man or a single woman to lead his people. He leads up these men like Moses to lead his people. Moses had elders. We have elders. And we, we don't let Larry just do whatever he wants to do. Larry, do I let you do whatever you want to do? Do I, do I challenge you on a regular basis? Do, do the elders challenge you on a regular basis? So we have all this leadership. Moses had ministry leaders, leaders of 10, leaders of 100, leaders of 1,000. He had his priests. He had Aaron. He had all of these levels of leadership, just like we do in the church. But something, maybe it's because we're educated and we really know our scriptures. Maybe we say, I, I can hear from God as much as you can. What I'm telling you is, Pastor Larry is our leader, and there has to be a submission, a proper biblical submission to that leadership. That's biblical leadership. And there was, there was a time to my own fault, I argued against that way back when in the day. We're all the same. All elders are the same. All leaders are the same. We're not. We're not. Pastor Larry carries a burden. He will be held accountable by, by the Lord Jesus Christ, as will all leaders in a different way than most than Christians. That's what the Bible says. And we have to be honest about it. It doesn't mean that I don't hear the voice of God, because I do, and so do you. It means we... It, what this, it means it is so easy to compromise the gospel at the level of biblical leadership. Don't do it. Don't do it. The good, the bad. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear some grace. <laughs> I am way down with my sin. I need to hear from the Lord that he is gracious and merciful to me. The reward, verse 17, to the one who conquers, who does not compromise, I will give hidden manna and a white stone with a new name that nobody else knows except for you and God. This is the grace. 
This is the reward for those who do not compromise. And for whatever reason, these things, these items, the hidden manna and the stone, they're intentionally obscure to us. We simply don't know what they are. I'm assuming the people who heard it in the first century knew, but we don't know. Commentaries have guessed at it, but we don't know it's obscure to us. And as a faithful preacher of the gospel, a preacher of the word, I have to, it has to remain somewhat obscure. But we need some encouragement right now, don't we? Amen? We need some encouragement from the Lord after taking a really hard look in the mirror at our own sin. And so this is what the commentator said. I'm just kind of going to give it to you right off, right off the, the letters of the page. The hidden manna. Some people think, well, it's the manna that was in the sanctuary. Probably the meaning, the simplest meaning is that the believer who overcomes will receive celestial food not available to the world. Food that's not available to the world. Think of John 4. Jesus is saying, I'm hungry. And the disciples are like, let's get him something to eat. You got to eat, Jesus. You need to eat. And Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Meaning it was hidden to them in that moment. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone just, has somebody brought him food that we didn't see? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my food. And that is the food that is given to you in the hidden manna. The accomplished work of Jesus Christ. No matter how much sin you had to confess today during the bad section. Jesus is right there as your Savior with his accomplished work, his death, his resurrection, his glory to forgive you of that sin. Isn't that good news? Refreshing. I don't care how many times I hear it. It's a refreshment to my soul. And then he's going to give you a white stone with a new name. We don't know what the white stone is. We simply don't know. But what we do know is it's some kind of assurance of blessing. A white stone with a new name on it. In modern times, a name, it's just a label. Tim, yeah, hey, what? Somebody looking for me? It's just a label. But in ancient times, it represented the, the whole person's character. The, it, it, would be, it would be weird to have a hidden name in modern times. It would seem strange and it would be a crippling disadvantage to us. But it, to the people of antiquity, the hidden name was precious. It meant that God had given the overcomer a new character, which no one knew except himself. It was not public property. It was a little secret. Now get this, between him and God. It was a little secret between her and God. No one else knew about it. So at the conclusion of this sermon, with all of the honesty, with all discussion about elephants in the room, all of taking a really hard look at yourself in the mirror and probably seeing some things that lurk in the darkness and you don't like and they're ugly. This message ends on grace. This message ends with Jesus. Just think of yourself. Just think of all the intimacy associated with the hidden manna and the white stone. Just just picture yourself just being with Jesus right now. And he gives you food to eat 
manna, which is his accomplished work on the cross for you. Jesus says, this is for you, my son. This is for you, my daughter. Yes, I know the evil in your heart. I know all the things that lurk there, but here's this hidden manna. Don't stop with, don't stop with confession. I have forgiven you. Dine on my forgiveness. And then he gives you this white stone. You turn it over and it has this new name in, engraved on it. I want you to think of the best possible version of yourself. Perfectly loving towards God and others, always doing the right thing. No more racism that lurks in your heart. Nothing that divides you from another brother or sister in Christ. No one else knows it, just you. My name is Timothy, from the Greek Timotheus, meaning honoring God. That's a pretty good name. But God's saying he's going to give me a new name, which has so much better character than honoring God. I can barely take that in. And here's the thing. It's a little secret between me and Jesus. You know what that means? That means you're a part of the club. That means you belong to Jesus. That's why you have so much confidence to confess your sins because you, your sins can never go deep enough that you won't find Jesus right there to bring you up, to remind you of his cross and his death and his resurrection and put you on solid ground. He is already giving you a new character right now. It has started the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That new character begins. That new name begins. You belong. It is easy to compromise the gospel. Don't do it. Because to the one who overcomes is the hidden manna and the white stone with a new name, a new character, and there will be peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God in heaven, we thank you that the story of the people of God does not end with sin. It ends with forgiveness. It ends with a God who is steadfast, slow to anger, full of covenant faithfulness to his people. No matter how many times we act like the Israelites and we fail and we grumble and we complain and we sin, you are there to be faithful to us, Lord God. To forgive us of our sins and to build into us a new character. Do it, Lord. May we be victorious, never compromising from the left, never compromising from the right or even down the middle. We want to be victorious in Jesus Christ. Because we want you to get glory and we want people to know about your name. Thank you, Lord, for being with us this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and continue to worship our Lord and God.